Whereas I think the Dutch call him, and I suppose they're more accurate because he was born in Holland, Vincent van Hoff. And I suppose many of his paintings are very, very familiar to us, quite famous. He was the son of a godly pastor who preached the word of God and uh, Van Gogh himself wanted to be a preacher of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. For a while he lived in London. His favourite preacher was a great Baptist preacher in the last, uh, well, two centuries ago I suppose now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Sunday morning by Sunday morning, morning Van Gogh went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and heard this man who at the age of 20 was speaking to crowds of or anything over 5,000 and sometimes up to 20,000. He loved to hear the word of God preached. In fact, in the evenings, Van Gogh, instead of going to church, used to go down to the east end of London and preach the gospel to the poor. Sadly, things were to change. He wanted to study further. He went to Antwerp and he studied the scriptures. But the people who taught him were very antagonistic to the things of God and tried to destroy the Bible and slowly Van Gogh began to lose his trust in God and turn to immorality. You'd expect a great artist to eventually paint something which reflected this change of position and he did. And uh, in a famous painting that I'd like you to look at if you can see it in the, um, it's a little bit dark and perhaps you can't see it as clearly as I'm going to point out one or two things. He calls it an open Bible with a candlestick and a book. The open Bible, if we could see more clearly, is actually opened at Isaiah chapter 53. The candlestick, well you can see the candle has gone out actually in the original, there's a slight whisper of smoke, you can just see that. And the book, an erotic novel that had been banned called La Joie de Vie. And he was saying through this painting really that the light over the Bible had gone as far as his life was concerned and he'd replaced it by la joie de vie, the joy of life, immorality and going against the things of God. Now why this particular chapter, Isaiah 53? It's a very significant one because we're going to see that it was used to point a man to God who was searching for God but was finding the way difficult. It actually ties up very well with baptism because in the book of Acts, which of course is the, is the book that describes the very early Christian church, we find a man coming to faith through Isaiah chapter 53 and then being baptized. So if you have a Bible, you might turn to page 1101 or Acts chapter 8 and I want to read this wonderful story that's found in Acts 8 verse 26. Acts 8, beginning to read at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, and Philip was an evangelist, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. As I said, it's from Isaiah chapter 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So, the story of a man who's done very well for himself, in actual fact I suppose we would call him the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the land of Ethiopia, a man of high position, but a man who sensed an emptiness, a sense of something missing in his own life. It's interesting, we always imagine people in high position have, have got it all together, you know, that uh, surely they feel that, that they're happy, they're satisfied. But here we have a, a first century example of somebody who know, feels there's something more. And we don't know what it was that made his mind begin to think about the things of God. Perhaps he had some sort of religious background. Perhaps, on the other hand, he'd been hearing news about things that had been going on in Israel. After all, for three years earlier, the Lord Jesus Christ had been teaching, healing, working, and the atmosphere, wherever he went, was transformed. This was a man who could meet blind people and give them back their sight. The deaf were made to hear, the dumb spoke, the lame walked, the paralyzed received their strength again. Even dead people came back to life. This was a man who could walk on water. This was a man who could still the storm. Last Sunday I was preaching in Stranra and I was rem reminded when I went down on Sunday afternoon for a little walk and I saw the ferry coming in of one of my last trips back from uh, Lan to Stranra. It, it, in those days it was a two and a quarter hour ferry ride. I think it's a journey a little bit shorter nowadays but, but we were on the ferry. I was with a friend. We were there for seven and a half hours just thrown about like a cork on the sea. It was awful. The, the thing that I remember was after about three, four hours over the tannoid system came this apology that they were delayed because of the currents and the storm, etc. And uh, to compensate us, they said, we'd like to give you all a free meal. <laughs> I think they felt pretty safe, but I was with my friend and both of us have a, a bit of sort of Scottishness within us, so we felt, oh, we'll go and get that, it's free. And um, anyway, we had this meal. I, I wasn't going into too much detail, but we did feed the fish later on. Uh, but all for the power to be able to say to the wind and the waves, peace be still, and there be tranquility. We have no such power, but Christ did. And the news of all that Jesus Christ was doing, maybe even of his death and resurrection, the news of this man who had power over nature, over disease, over Satan himself, surely was travelling, and maybe this Ethiopian Chancellor of the Exchequer had heard something about this man of God and perhaps he wanted to go and, and, and see him for himself or at least hear 
those who'd met him speaking about some of the power that he had, perhaps as well he knew that God had met with individuals. There was a temple after all in Jerusalem. Wasn't this where God would come down and meet with human beings? Something in his heart longed for more of the things of God. Ever felt like that? Ever gone to bed at night and thought, oh, I, I wish I could have peace in my heart and my conscience conscience, ever woken up in the morning and thought, I'd love to know that the sort of assurance, the calm tranquility, the peace, the rest, the spiritual life that people like Fiona have experienced, and, and maybe you've heard others tell their story of how it was they came to Christ. Well, here is this man, and I imagine the time came when he plucked up sufficient courage to go to the Queen and ask permission, Your Majesty, you know I've served you well, but there is in my heart a hunger, a thirst for something more, for, for God, I'd like to go to Jerusalem. I, I, I'd like to do something to try and find out more, to satisfy the religious quest. Surely there must be a God and I want to know Him. Would you give me permission to go on this journey? And permission was granted. I can imagine over a matter of days, maybe even weeks, he worked carefully, planning everything, getting his entourage together, soldiers, perhaps servants, who were going to help him. But the big day arrived when he set off with huge anticipation, no doubt a heart thumping and beating with the, the longing that he had to find God, or at least find those who knew God. And he goes on this long journey. Eventually, if I can read between the lines, I can picture him. I, I've never done it myself, but I've seen photographs of that hill overlooking the city. I can imagine him standing there and overlooking the splendid city of Jerusalem and there, central to it all, is the temple. And he turns to his men and he says, look, give me some hours. I, I want to go alone to the temple. I want to meet with God. Can we meet in such and such a place at such and such a time? And he makes his way. And he enters this splendid temple. Great things have happened there in the past and now it's been rebuilt and... Oh, and I don't know quite how this would have happened, but I'm sure it did. Were there notices? Was it just the temple guard? But he's making his way to go to the temple and, and some, some people just asking some questions. And just a moment, you want to go in? Yes, I, I want to go and meet with God. All right, well, just who are you? Tell us about yourself. This isn't just anybody and everybody, they say. This is a Jewish temple. We have our rules, our regulations. Who are you? Well, <laughs> I, 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 I'm from Ethiopia. Well, all right, but why do you want to commit? Well, I want to meet with God. Well, why here? Well, I've heard, I've known, I, I just want to go in there and... Well, well, tell us more about yourself. Well, okay, I, I'm actually the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the land of Ethiopia. I serve Queen Candace. I have letters to show, to prove who I am and... Well, you know, I've served her for many years. I, I, was, I, was, I was trained for this throughout my childhood. In fact... Well, I, 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 I'm a eunuch because I was going to serve the Queen and... You're a eunuch? Well, well yes, you know, all those who serve the Queen are, are eunuchs. Sorry. No eunuchs allowed in the temple. Well, now, just a moment. Don't misunderstand, you know. I, I, everyone who serves the Queen is like that. We, no eunuchs allowed in the temple. God's law, years ago, decreed it and no eunuchs allowed. And they're rigid about what they're saying. He says, look, is it money you want? No, no, it's not money. Is it the authority, the, the proof that I am who I claim? No, 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 no. No eunuchs allowed in the temple. 
And do you know that is exactly what God had said? It seems a strange rule to us. But God actually said whether somebody was born or made a eunuch, they were not allowed in that, that inner place where they could meet with God. Why? I don't know how you view God. People say to me, you know, I'm, well, I personally feel that God is like so and so. My view of God is, and really, what does it matter what anybody's view of God is? What really matters is, what is God's view of God? What does God say about himself? And God has revealed himself to us in many ways, but primarily through the person of the Lord Jesus and through this written book, the Word of God, God's revelation to men and women, to humanity. And God tells us that he is absolutely holy pure, clean, sinless. We, we, we can't really understand what that means. It doesn't just mean that he's never sinned, because tucked away in the Old Testament is a wonderful story about how some angels, angels who themselves have never sinned, approaching God, and as they do, they cover themselves and hide and bow, and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. So these unsinning angels are approaching God and even they feel overtaken with a sense of awe and the holiness of God. So holiness is not just that he's never sinned. There's something deeply holy, intrinsically holy about the character of God. And if God is going to meet with men and women, they, we too, must be pure and holy. The eunuch was not the man he ought to be. For him it was a physical thing, an outward thing. And for us, an inward thing, a moral thing, a spiritual thing. Just like this unit, we're not the men and women we ought to be. Some of us are. Ever got up in the morning and thought, I'd just like to live this life, this, this 20, next 24 hours, just doing nothing wrong, thinking no wrong thoughts, saying no wrong words, doing no wrong deeds. Ever tried that? Hmm. It doesn't work, does it? New Year resolutions, what, nearly a month ago, how many of them stand? They, they, they think we do not have the power to be the people we ought to be. None of us are. God himself says, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All are liars. Never mind all the other sins. You're not the man you ought to be. I'm sorry, there's no way you can come into the temple. Can you imagine how the man's heart sank? How bitterly disappointed. He's come all the way from Ethiopia longing to go to the temple and... No, he's excluded. I don't know how many days he spent there. I, I don't suppose there's much heart for this visit now. Did he do the sightseeing trip? Who knows? Did he buy anything? Maybe. Maybe it was in Jerusalem that he bought the scriptures, scrolls. I don't know, maybe he had them before. But eventually he turns to his men and he says, right, come on, we're, we're, we're going back. There's no point in us staying here. I, I want to go back to Ethiopia. And he sets off in his chariot, in the carriage, the soldiers, the servants, all there. And he's reading. And he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53 the very chapter that Van Gogh painted, the very chapter which, which looks forward to the coming of Christ, the suffering servant. Well, as far as I understand it, that's exactly what was happening. But something else was going on. The God who is absolutely holy and just and is separate from sin is also a God who cares for individuals. He loves us. 
He knows every detail about each one of us. He individually formed us. He knows us. He weighs us. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. He knows what we're like. He knows all about yesterday. He knows all about tomorrow for each one of us. And he saw what was going on in the mind and heart of this Ethiopian. A few miles away was an evangelist. His name was Philip. He was preaching in the city of Samaria. Great crowds were coming and listening. After all, these were wonderful days and the gospel was rapidly spreading. People were being converted. And as Peter mentioned earlier, thousands being converted and being baptized. Jesus was the talk of the town and beyond. But God spoke to Philip and said, Now, Philip, okay, you're speaking to the crowds in Samaria, but I want you to leave them. I want you to go somewhere else. I'll show you where. And God was going to direct this preacher of the gospel away from the vast crowd and the city to one individual in the middle of the desert making his way back with a disappointed heart to his hometown, to, to, his, to his old occupation with no sense of knowing God. Eventually, God said, now just go and join yourself to that, that, that chariot over there. I, I like to think of Philip as the first Hitchhiker, you know, he runs along this side this chariot, and, and, and there's a man reading, reading out loud. That's the way they used to do it, and, and they weren't particularly easy words for somebody who didn't have a theological or a Bible background. He's reading words. He thinks, "What on earth is this all about?" He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth in his humiliation. He's, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from him. What on earth does all this mean? And Philip, the evangelist, he interrupts and says, excuse me, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand it? I don't know that that was the most tactful way to begin a conversation with the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Can you imagine going to Gordon Brown and saying, excuse me, do you understand what all this is about? Do you, do you, know, do you know? But these things are spiritually understood. I understand that William Hague is at the moment uh, writing a biography of William Pitt, the youngest Prime Minister that we ever had. William Wilberforce, I just have to tell you this, he was a Yorkshireman. I, I don't know what he is about me, but every sermon I preach, I like to just drop a bit of culture in it. And I, I like to I use the word Yorkshire. He was a Yorkshireman. He went to Parliament as a self-seeking politician. But wonderfully, he was converted to Christ. He became a great Christian leader, preacher of the gospel, and of course the man who under God was responsible for the abolition of slavery. After Wilberforce had been in Parliament just a short time, before he was converted, he wrote to his friend William Pitt and said, you really ought to come to Parliament. It's a wonderful life. You'll enjoy it. You sometimes wonder about the motives of politicians. But anyway, we won't go into all of that. And, and Pitt joined Wilberforce in Parliament. Then Wilberforce was converted. And he began to pray for his young friend, William Pitt. And eventually... He invited William Pitt to go to church with him, a Church of England church, one Sunday morning in London, where the gospel was going to be preached. And so they met each other together, they went into church, and Wilberforce records how clearly and simply the gospel was presented. Afterwards, they're walking out together, and Wilberforce turned to Pitt and said, Now what do you think of what was said? And Pitt responded, You know, I didn't understand a word of what the preacher was saying. Isn't that strange? Brilliant Prime Minister, great politician, marvellous intellect, but somehow he didn't understand these things. If there's anybody here and you say, I just can't make head or tail of the Bible. I, I just cannot understand Christianity. What is it all about? 
it's because we are spiritually blind unless God opens our spiritual eyes. The Bible isn't just a sort of Shakespeare. This is a spiritual book and God himself needs to speak to us through his word and he will if we allow him to. Do you understand what you're reading? And, and the Ethiopian unit, the Chancellor of the Exchequer turns and said, well, well, how can I unless somebody explained it to me? He said, look, come on in. And, and he joined the Ethiopian in the chariot and he said, now this passage, what does this mean? Is, is he speaking of himself or is he speaking of somebody else? And, and from that very passage in the Bible, written 700 years earlier, Philip opened his mouth and began to preach about Jesus. Wonderful, you know, because wherever you go in the Bible, there is Christ prophesied, portrayed, pictured, or directly written about. Jesus is the central theme of the Bible from beginning to end. I often think the Bible's a little like one of those, um, you know, children's colouring books where you get, say, a woodland scene and there are 25 rabbits to find in, in the woods. Well, well, Jesus isn't that obscure in the Bible. He's there, he's evident on page after page after page. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ. The New Testament looks back on him. And the great scene is that Christ will come, has come, to go to a cross and die. From that very verse, Philip began to preach to him Jesus. You see, in Old Testament days, if somebody felt they were sinful inside, and I suppose we all feel it at times, Certainly we should. How could you get rid of that feeling? How could a sinful person feel forgiven, be forgiven? How could they be made clean inside? Well, what they used to do, and God gave instructions about all of this, they would take an animal and they would take it to a Jewish priest. And the Jewish priest would lay his hand on the head of the animal and the sinful person would lay his or her hand on the head of the, the animal and then the animal would die, its blood would be shed. Now, they used the meat, etc. Of, of the animal later on, but, but that innocent substitute died as a sacrifice for the guilty sinner. You see, sin always brings death. Either the death of the sinner or the death of the substitute. So Jewish people knew that if they'd sinned, they would take an animal, it would sacrifice, it would take the punishment, they would walk away free. And time and time again, for centuries, this is exactly what they did. And this is what Philip was, was, was explaining to the Ethiopian who was reading about this, this lamb being led like a sheep to the slaughter. In the fullness of time, because every animal sacrifice was picturing the fact that eventually Jesus Christ would come and die in this way. In the fullness of time, Christ was born. God, big enough to become small, God became a man clothing himself in humanity. And that little baby laid in a manger 2,000 years ago was born destined to die on a cross. He was innocent. He was pure but he was going to die as a sacrifice, as a substitute, not just for one individual sin, but the sin of the lost world. He was going to die for you and me. So God could look forward in time to the end of January 2003, here in Edinburgh and...
for? I perhaps couldn't cope with the volume, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Saw this chap desperately waving, at, not waving but drowning at the back. And, um, and then, then there would be a moment. And the Ethiopian would turn uh, and say, look, this is all very wonderful. I, I understand exactly what you're saying. But I have to tell you something. I came from, I came from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to meet with God. And, and you talk about the Old Testament, but... Look, I have to tell you this. I could never come to know God because I'm a eunuch. I'm not the man I ought to be. And God, God has barred access for the likes of me to come to know Him. If that conversation went on, I'd love to think that Philip said, hey, hang on a minute. We've been looking at Isaiah chapter 53. Can we roll the scroll on just a moment? Three chapters later, of course, there weren't quite the chapter divisions that we have now in those days, but can we just roll it on? Because three chapters later, in Isaiah chapter 56, look at these words. Verse 3. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Isn't that marvellous? Do you see? You, though you're a eunuch, you are included because when Christ died, he died for men and women who are not the people they ought to be. And it may just be that there's someone here today and you think, oh, you know, it's nice to come to a church and hear all this religious music and this singing, etc. But if only they knew what I was like. I am not the person I ought to be. I have not lived as I should have lived. Look, when Christ came into the world, he didn't come for good people. He'd never have found any. He came into the world for sinful people, for people who've blown it, for people who've made mistakes, for people who are not the people inwardly that they ought to be. Oh, the excitement in that chariot. Then, suddenly, this Ethiopian who's longed to know how he can get to know God, suddenly realises that actually God has taken the initiative. He has come down to earth. He has carried his sins on the cross. He was buried. He rose. Christ came for me and suddenly sees some water. He says, hey look, here's some water. What would stop me from being baptised? And well, if you believe, said the evangelist, you may be baptised. And, oh, I believe, he said. And, and they stopped, you know, stopped stop the chariot. And the soldiers and the servants, they must have thought, we've seen some strange things on this trip today. We, we really have. But anyway, the two of them, Philip, the evangelist, and the Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised the Ethiopian. As he went down under the water, it was as if he was dying to his old life. As he came up out of the water, it was as if he was rising with a new life. Did being baptized make him a Christian? No. Becoming a Christian is something that happens within. 
It's a work of God. When we call out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, God forgives us and comes and lives within us. Baptism is a sort of badge of discipleship. You know, sometimes people wear badges, don't they? They, they, they belong to the Rotary Club. It's saying they belong, and baptism is really an outward sign saying, I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, typical of this evangelist, you know, an evangelist down through the years, he's here one minute, gone the next, and he's just taken away. You think, where have they gone? Anyway, evangelists are just like that. But um, I know, I speak from experience, but uh, was this Ethiopian left? No, he wasn't left. He had the Word of God in his hands. And no doubt, as a new believer, he started to read God's Word, and God spoke to him and communicated to him. More than that, he had the testimony of God on his lips. You know, I went to Jerusalem looking for God. I didn't find him, but oh, he found me. He sent an evangelist to tell me how to become a Christian in that desert. And thirdly, he had the Spirit of God in his heart. You see, when a person becomes a Christian, not only is their sin forgiven because Christ has died for their sin, but God, by His Holy Spirit, comes to live within us and He gives us a new desire and a new power to start to live as we should. I've met many a person who said to me, oh, I'd love to become a Christian, but I could never keep up the Christian life. Ever felt like that? The God who reaches out to rescue, to save you, is the God who will keep you and help you to do the things that he commands you to do and live the life that he'd have you live. It's a wonderful thing to be right with God. Yesterday I was walking along some street in Edinburgh, I'm not quite sure which it was, and I met a group of people preaching the gospel. They'd got a microphone and they were preaching the gospel. I stood and listened and enjoyed what they were saying. One of them said something which really struck me. It doesn't take a lifetime to become a Christian, he said. You can become a Christian now. And he's absolutely right. You see, God has come down from heaven to earth for you and for me. Carrying your sins and mine on the cross, he died that we might be forgiven. That the barrier which separates us from a pure, holy God might be dealt with and that we might have a relationship with God that lasts and grows and is enjoyed forever. Not only in life, but through death and into eternity. Two weeks ago, Detective Constable Stephen Oakes was murdered in Manchester. Yesterday we saw pictures, no doubt, on our televisions of his funeral. His daughter left a note with a little P.S. saying, P.S. I'll see you in heaven, Daddy. Was she fooling herself? No. Stephen Oakes, like Fiona, had trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Saviour. And from what she was saying, it appears that this daughter of his had as well. And God promises heaven, not for those who are the people that they ought to be or were created to be. None of us are. We know that we're not the men and women we should be. But Christ came for, for us, for sinners. And even tonight, he would appeal to each one of us and say, Now, Will you turn from your sin? The Bible calls that repentance. Will you turn from your sin? Will you trust? The Bible calls that faith, believing. Will you ask the Lord Jesus to forgive you and live within you as Fiona did at Spring Harvest, as many in this church have done? Would you tonight ask Christ to forgive you? He cares for each individual. 
and he can cope with each individual. And in your heart, even now, if you'll say, oh Lord Jesus, rescue me, forgive me, make me yours. Help me to follow you and do the things I should and live in the way that you would have me live. He will. He promises to. In a moment, we're going to sing our closing hymn. And then after that, I'd like to pray a prayer that is a very definite, deliberate prayer. And I'm going to ask us to sit down after the hymn to pray this prayer. Let me explain. When I became a Christian, I prayed a prayer whereby I asked Christ to forgive me. I thanked him for dying for me and rising from the dead. And I asked him to live within me. It was like the hinge which changed the whole direction of my life. I was made right with God and... For many years now, I've enjoyed that walk with God. I've never once regretted becoming a Christian. I'm going to pray a prayer like that tonight. And I'm going to invite you, whoever you are, however you've lived, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you're involved in, whatever your background, however you came in to Charlotte Chapel tonight, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, just quietly, not out loud, in your heart of hearts, just to pray and ask Christ to forgive you and live within you. And then, if you do pray with me, or perhaps you feel, I'm not quite ready, but I want to know a little bit more about it. I'm going to ask you to do something at the very end of the service, and it won't be very easy to do it, because most people will be going that way. I'm going to be standing down here, and I'll have in my hand a pack. It's called, Because You Asked. And I'd just like you to come to me and say, Roger, could I have one of those packs, please? In it are three booklets. A little booklet called Trust in Christ, which explains how you can trust in Christ. There's a prayer, very similar to the one I'm about to pray. There's this booklet, Steps to Knowing God, published by the Scottish Bible Society. It's the Gospel of John. So you can start to read the Word of God for yourself and let God speak to you. And this booklet with some foundational Bible studies for those who are starting out in the Christian life called Just the Start. It's free. And if tonight you pray with me, or you think, I want to know how I can get right with God, I'd like you just to come to me and say, Roger, could I have one of those packs, please? I, I, I'd like to give you one. There's a little card, and I'm going to ask you to give me a name and address. And then tomorrow, when I'm back in Leeds, God willing, I'd like to write you a little letter just to encourage you on in these first steps of starting to live for the Lord Jesus. So, we're going to sing, and then I'm going to ask you, if you will, to pray this prayer with me. And if you do, to come and tell me so that I can give you one of these very helpful packs.